Welcome to the Omni Gamers Club podcast, the podcast for games on all platforms, including on your Pokesphere Palpad. I'm Mark Uesa. And I am Daniel Winter. How are you doing, Mark? I am well. It's the weekend, so got some relaxing, quiet family times in. How about well, yourself? It sounds like it's not too, too relaxing when you've got some uh, some kids sleepovers going on there. So <laughs> well, <sure>. yeah, <laughs> it's a little bit of a hurdle, but that's okay. you got some forced lounging around the house time. Plus, you can always send them outside to play, right? We did actually have a, a relatively rainless uh, weekend after our uh, the, the endless rain of uh, Against the Storm and the last uh, month in uh, in Vancouver here. <laughs> right, exactly. We had that one snowfall over like two days and then it all just disappeared in an instant, uh, just as easily as it came in. Yes, yeah, that is such is such is life in Vancouver. So uh, I was I was curious uh, as a we don't, we don't usually do this as a, a formal segment, but our last episode on Against the Storm, I was curious if you played that again any more since we last discussed it i haven't played one second of against the storm <laughs> once our episode recorded and i don't think that's necessarily a knock on against the storm i suppose i'm just feeling a little slightly o- overwhelmed or concerned once again as one gets with their game backlog right some people call it a, a pile of shame pile of opportunity everyone gets a game backlog and there's tons of RPGs I want to play. There's tons of board games I would like to play. There's tons of video games I feel guilty for buying and then not getting to right away. And then there's a whole raft of games that come out on uh, Xbox Game Pass and things like that. So there's so many games. There what can I say? Too many dang games out there. And like I, I've certainly struggled with a bit of a attention span. I feel like I've, I've really struggled to focus on any one game at a time this last year or so but all, all that is to say i did actually return to against the storm uh not uh i haven't made any particularly uh important progress i've still not unlocked rain punk which is my main goal is to see how that sort of extra mechanic layers on top of everything else but i did i unlocked my second seal i believe like which is the sort of big uh sort of boss level uh, that you get every now and then uh so about to dive into my third cycle and, and see how that mixes things up but uh yeah still still enjoying against the storm nice we can have a segment where we return to a game we tackled some time ago maybe yeah, that, maybe after one year or something this is actually one of the first instances in which i have doubled back to a game uh at least in the in the, in the video game sphere uh it's not it's usually we we if, play through it and, and always moving on to the next thing so it's nice to to have a bit having a bit of a long tail to a game shall we say but uh to, on today's episode so for our featured episode of uh, sorry, our featured game today we're going to be looking at age of wonders planet fall and that is the the board game sort of uh implementation of that which was originally a video game uh but before that we've got a little bit of news and what else we have been playing What's news to you, Mark? Yeah, so I was pleasantly surprised to see, maybe it was on the Discord channel that we share, that uh, someone mentioned Quinn's from um, Shut Up and Sh- Sit Down fame. Uh, started up a new channel. Uh, of course, I'd known that he had another channel in addition to Shut Up and Sit Down. There's the wonderful People Make Games, which does kind of longer 
form documentaries about games or games game adjacent uh, sort of game adjacent yeah. topics and phenomenon for instance uh, he covered a really interesting um, expose i suppose on chinese murder mystery social deduction games yes, i just watched that last night it was, it was really interesting yeah it's fascinating insight into a world but anyways um, on top of that he's got a brand new channel which i was pleased to see has at least one video on it now it's called queen's quest so the channel is called queen's quest and for his first i believe his first video he tackled the tabletop rpg called the wild sea seems like a sort of science fantasy but with um, a lot of room to let players customize their own worlds so i've enjoyed the um, rpg uh, material that they've shown on uh, shut up and sit down mainline channel and i'm hoping that this will be a continuation of that but maybe you know a little little chance for quinn's to 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 get wild and wacky there and also provide some good games journalism yeah i've, I've not uh, checked that one out yet but i, I know they've, they've covered a lot of uh, ttrpg content in the past and i guess this is an effort to sort of keep that as a separate entity uh so but yeah very much looking forward to that i did see apparently there's a mention of uh zhang Shi, the sort of Chinatown restaurant TTRPG in there. Yeah, made by a friend of the show, San Fun Lim, uh, and of course, noted board game designer uh, as well. Um, yeah, Zhang Shi on, I guess there's a trailer to the Quinn's Quest channel, and Zhang Shi is like the last uh, board game shown in, in a pile of them, and it's shown for extra long time. You know, in a, in a one minute video, video, you notice things like that. Uh, so perhaps they're going to showcase that particular TTRPG sometime soon. Yeah, I'll definitely be watching that. And in other sort of shut up and sit down adjacent news, they I think it was last week they dropped out of the blue. They re resuscitated the Cool Ghosts channel. I mean, I think they, it was revived long enough to drop a single episode before it's basically on on hiatus again. But uh, that was always an excellent uh, sort of analysis of uh, video games through a sort of sort of interesting lens uh, sort of weird meta humor on, on around the edges but in between that there's some very uh, apt video game analysis and they covered one of my favorite games so check that out and uh and see what games they're covering or it always makes me interested in games that i'm both ones that i'm already familiar with but there's a couple there that i hadn't heard of and they always analyze in such a way that sort of intrigues you to, to new games that perhaps weren't on your radar yeah, absolutely. I don't think anyone really has the time to play all the games that come out, uh, us included. Uh, well, not to, uh, to to bring it down a bit, but there's a, there's a bit of news I wanted to discuss that I could easily have discussed in the last several episodes. There was always uh, something else <laughs> pressing to discuss, but this continues to be a uh, unfortunately big news in 2024, and that is layoffs in in board games and video games uh, industries. Uh, just in this year alone, so far we've had big layoffs at Riot and Activision Blizzard had like 1,800 layoffs, I think. Eidos, a, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and Funko Prospero Hall in in the board game space. They apparently. They're, Prospero Hall has basically been sold off completely to a, a different studio and laid off all of their employees, I believe. So it's just a bit of a, a holding company now for the, their, their previous games. And that's about it, which is which is sad to see. And, uh, and for, I mean, it's, it's always a bit of a, a constant one way or another. It's, it's, there are going to be companies close and, 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 and consolidate. But it, it has, does definitely feel like it's been ramping up 
quite a bit in the last couple of years. Uh, capitalism has to capitalism, I guess, and especially with these these big sort of conglomerate groups like Embracer. I mean, Asmodee in its time, which was it was then em- embraced in turn by the Embracer group. Uh, so a, a little worried about what might be happening there, uh, especially as uh, Embracer continues to shed its uh, its studios. Yeah, uh, obviously, our uh, you know my heart goes out to those who are affected by the layoffs. I mean, I I was in the software industry myself. I've experienced a layoff round or two and survived a layoff round or two. So I know how that goes. And it's just never fun. But when it all comes down all at once across so many companies in the same industry or the same couple of industries, Mm -hmm. I can see how that would be extra difficult for people relocating to new positions. It's not like there's thousands upon thousands of game jobs just waiting in the wings uh, to be filled um, when when a bunch of the big companies do it. So definitely thinking of them. And I suppose in our headlong enthusiasm for the potential merger of Microsoft, Activision, Blizzard, and, uh, and King and other companies, we could have expected that this sort of thing yeah. was going to happen. Yeah, everyone made a big, uh, there was a lot of excitement around that merger, obviously, in terms of what it could do to the consumer, but not much. I mean, there was also some thought that it would be good for employees in terms of no longer being under the thumb of Bobby Kotick, for one thing. But there's always always going to be layoffs as part of a big acquisition. I'm led to believe this was pretty standard, which is um, pretty, pretty depressing to just arbitrarily cut. Uh, it was eight eight percent, I think, nine percent of the of the the company basically, and it was a big survival game they'd been working on for years was completely shut down. So a lot of people had you know thrown years of their life into this project only to see it dissolve. Yeah, it's it's not the first time, and it's definitely not the last time that this sort of consolidation and right sizing uh, gag uh, happens within industries. But you know, I will share a, a small good news story that came about uh, with mergers and acquisitions in the game space. You mentioned Asmodee, you mentioned the Embracer Group. Uh, we all recall a fantastic little game company that could called Plat Hat Games. You know yes. them. Yeah, they bought themselves um, out from under Asmodee, right? Exactly. So there's a case where they were indie, they got bought out, their parent got bought out, and then eventually they uh, got to buy back their company and the rights to their own games. And nowadays, since going back to indie, they've been producing some of their most creative, most successful products. So uh, kudos to them um, for, for getting back on, on the horse uh, after it all went down. Definitely does feel like they're on a much more sustainable path now. Obviously, it's it's, it's tough to make any kind of game as a as a relatively small studio with like getting the capital to keep th- things going year to year. But when when that, that unfortunate capital comes with certain expectations of eternal growth, that's just not really sustainable in in the creative fields, unfortunately. But uh, that, that touches the way of the world, unfortunately. So hopefully, yeah, as, as you say, hearts out to all those people and uh, hopefully they find other work. It's, it's tough to be a creative right now. Absolutely. Do you have any other news that's exciting you? Yeah, well, I wouldn't say exciting, but uh, certainly something I've been watching is the there's a you know, particular uh, elephant-shaped Pokemon in the what, 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 what's that called? F- Fandon F- fondant? What's what's the elephant Pokemon? Oh, I, I <laughs> know the I, I know the name of like three Pokemon. So whatever, whatever uh, it's, it's called, it's I, want to, I want to address it. Uh, and so th- that is the, this new game that's come out called Power World. Uh, the the moniker that you'll see a lot of people throwing around is Pokemon with guns, which I don't think is entirely 
reflective of what this game is. But Mark, I think you've actually been playing this a little bit. So why don't you, why don't you tell us about it? Sure. Yeah, I've been playing about a dozen hours of Pal World uh, since it came out, and it could have been a lot more. I mean, I do have an interest in playing it. It falls along the lines of some genres of games I really enjoy. So I'm not going to give it a, a recommendation at this point, but I'm going to say I have interest in playing it and continuing to play it. I think the whole Pokemon with guns things is a little um, clickbaity. Uh, I heard another podcast talk about it, actually a podcast in Japanese, the IGN Japan channel, talking about Pal World. And they were saying that it's, you know, it's much more of a parody than, than a ripoff per se. They're, they're, they're sort of wryly looking at that sort of game concept and seeing what would happen if you turned it on its side. The parody I don't think it's cynical. Kind of message there, right? <laughs> no, there, there is a message. There is a message that Pokemon itself is a very bizarre, really kind of frightening world if you actually well, yeah. took a second <laughs> to think about how they coexist with Pokemon and maybe what they do with Pokemon, like, you know, eat it for, for meat products, for instance, things like that, or how there's a whole, like, basically Pokemon monster industrial complex where you, you train these beasts to, to fight and you get into these uh, fighting arenas. Uh, it's It's sort of... A little disturbing if you actually stop to think about it. Yeah, po Pokemon does certainly coast on a lot of a lot of whimsy and just ignoring the the, the topics around the on the on the fringes of how that world functions. But I, at the same time, I don't think that Power World, in terms of making those uh, making an exploitation explicit, I don't think that is in, in itself is enough to really be saying anything. So I guess we should say this is actually it's like a survival games more of like yeah. Fortnite, or kind of Fortnite or arcs arc the dinosaur game yeah with, our with arc survival yeah. is 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 much more similar to the mark and i don't know if this a game has to have some sort of deep philosophical background no, no. for someone to make it it's not like collecting creatures is that creative or original in the first place uh, or if any of those pokemon designs that have come out over the years are so original and not inspired by other creations like any other anime style creatures or Ghibli or Sanrio characters that they've made before. Um, I think people are really just missing the whole point of this thing. It it's a, it's a, it's yeah. a lighthearted, <laughs> lighthearted game and people are feeling a little too precious about growing up and loving their Pokemon and are really aghast that anyone's trying to touch it or touch upon similar ground, yeah. even I mean, though I, dozens of games have. Yeah, yeah. I, I, Pokemon doesn't have a, a monopoly on, on that concept. Like, I'm, I'm all for people sort of experimenting and trying to evolve that that, that format. Uh, and, and the reason I bring this up as news is that this is basically... We broke all kinds of records for, for like number of, of of players in the first week or something like five or seven million players in the first week uh which shows that there is a demand that that is not being fulfilled obviously I and mean, there's a certain de de degree of memeiness to it um like streamers have been playing it and people are jumping on and it's on game pass but i know i i, I can't help but be still be a little bit cynical of it having watched a couple of streams it just it looked like a bit of an, an exquisite corpse of just different games patchworked together, like Fra Fra Frankenstein style. Like the the graphic, the, the, so the animation is just it's basically just Fortnite. It looks everything looks exactly like Fortnite, other than it's a survival game and you've got Pokemon running around. And yeah, but Fortnite is a pastiche <laughs> on on the Unreal Engine, just like for 
Fortnite is, right? Like yeah, Battle yeah. World is. This is the one that happened so to be popular. <laughs> every game, exactly. Every online, especially service game, morphs to fit what its audience does. And any indie game or indie game studio that suddenly gets an influx of a significant amount of attention, whether it's meme worthy or not, is gonna is gonna ride that wave and invest back any any of the funds they get into keeping that wave going for as long as possible. Just like some more recent sort of meme games like uh so just like the the Among Us craze did and uh Fall Guys and things like that have done thereafter. These games don't have to be masterpieces. They just have to be things that people enjoy and that's good enough. Yeah, I don't think there's anything inherently problematic with this. It just, I, I can't help but feel feel that it all just seems a bit tacky, I guess. Like it's it's like the equivalent of that of Calvin peeing, like you see as a as a bumper sticker, and it just doesn't seem like it's got really got anything much to say. I'm I'm, I'm curious to see what happens. I'm, sure, I'm there's I think there's gonna be more news around that. Everyone's expecting a Nintendo lawsuit or some uh, something around eight. Like the, the the CEO has been a big advocate of AI and has made uh, AI games previously. So I'm I, I'm a little bit more wary in, in regards to that, but I'll definitely be keeping an eye on uh, how this game uh, evolves. Shall we say? <laughs> yeah, I think if the lawsuits were going to happen, it would have already happened. They already went after the modder who did mod, mod Pokemon, official Pokemon designs back into Battleworld. So they, they got them already. Um, so no lawyers found anything concern with the mainline character designs. Well, I'll continue to, to keep an eye on that. I'll just continue to be an old man yelling at clouds over here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's talk about what we ha- what we have been enjoying of late. Yes, yeah. What, what have you been playing, Mark? Other uh, than yeah. <laughs> Other than that, uh, like I said, I just got so many games. I feel like I'm juggling right now, even though it's no more no more than I usually do. I just feel like I should play fewer things, enjoy them more, and wrap them up more. I guess. Mm, yes. Um, so uh, I'm happy to report that I was able to wrap up a little mini arc of the tabletop role-playing game called The Strange. We completed, I think it was three or four sessions. Um, the characters, this was kind of one long extended like pilot episode, I guess you could say. The characters came about their supernatural abilities and learned something about themselves and their secret history that was hidden from them. They went through an adventure into another dimension, and then they sort of slew the metaphorical dragon, came back and discovered that there's this whole other secret world that they could become a part of in an official capacity. Oh, a little hook for another game, perhaps? (laughs) Yeah, so I I was excited with how it turned out. Maybe a little derivative. I did play uh, a, um, what was it, a published campaign or published adventure, but uh, I think it went over well, and I feel like I really enjoyed GMing my first uh, sessions of the Cipher system. Excellent. Yeah, I, I'm not. This is one I didn't play uh, myself, but I'm curious to see how that works. So, so Cipher is used in a bunch of different uh, system, uh, different different sort of settings, right? Yeah, that's right. The Cipher is the foundation of most notably Numenera, which has been around for right. over ten years or so. Right. Torment Tides of Numenera, based on that RPG system. It also is behind The Strange and a few other settings over the recent history, the last 10 years. I think the one that got a little bit of buzz with its Kickstarter last year was called The Old Gods of Appalachia. Oh, yeah. I'm curious about that one, actually. Yeah, Yeah, which is based on a horror 
themed podcast series. And then the, <laughs> the one that had a lot of buzz just before that, maybe the previous year was based off the Magnus Institute horror sci-fi podcast series as well. So, you know, if, if you like horror based games, it's a great setting for that, but it's very flexible. I really enjoy it. Uh, I'm going to continue trying to play games in that system. So what would you say are the strengths of that system in particular? I think the strengths of the system are that it's flexible. It's not rules light, but streamlined. Streamlined enough that a G new GMs could feel comfortable with letting it be mostly narrative first. But there's enough mechanical crunch that the players feel like they get to engage with the game as a sort of a co-creator, co-storyteller. Plus, there's this philosophy of ciphers, which the system is based on. Ciphers are basically these just like wondrous tools or um, even metaphorical tools, like bouts of inspiration or things like that, that you can hold on to and spend. And you're supposed to spend them because once you use them, they go away. So they're, they're sort of ephemeral kind of magic items or potions, even you could say. And every game is supposed to push ciphers, things like that, that give you a unique boost, like just, just the once. So it encourages players to be flexible and adaptable. So I, and GMs, which I really like. Hmm, kind of like sounds a little bit like sort of one one new scrolls in in, in like D and D or, or older scrolls or something that you can sort of break out at the right moment. <laughs> yeah, and the philosophy is you're not supposed to hoard these things. You can only hold on to two or three at a time. So you should just use them as soon as you get them, pretty much, or when the moment seems right. Because at the end of the adventure or the end of the session, you might find two or three more of these ciphers. So it's supposed to be constantly, constantly uncertain, constantly like energized by having these like odd <laughs> objects, <laughs> tools at your disposal. Excellent. Well, I, I'm quite interested to check out Old Gods of Appalachia, especially. I mean, I've been, I'm still playing uh, Fallout 76 for one thing, which has a bit of a similar setting and a lot of like yeah, perfect fit. cryptids and things. So uh, a bit of overlap there. So maybe we can check out that sometime. Sounds great. Uh, well, uh, what have I been playing? Well, sp uh, speaking of Power World, I guess, uh, a bit of a tangent there, that that put me into a... a, a <laughs> I've got a bit of a craving for punching trees, but that way. Uh, I haven't played a survival game in a while, uh, and so all the discussion around those made me uh, ch check out a couple. I was, I, was, I was curious to try Ark, Ar Arcs, the, the dinosaur survival game that is on Game Pass, but... I uh, haven't, haven't checked that out yet, but what I did uh, try was Lego Fortnite. So th this dropped just a couple of months ago. It's part of a uh, new Fortnite initiative to like branch out into a bunch of different modes. Uh, like There's a, a Guitar Hero mode, I, be I believe, uh, like a Rocket League. There's a, there's a racing mode, I think. Yeah, I think it's Rocket League or, or something adjacent to Rocket League. Uh, and finally, there's Lego Fortnite, which is more Minecraft than Fortnite, I should say. So it's basically it drops you into this open, procedurally generated open world, and you're you're building structures and going into dungeons to to find resources. And it's it's all very polished and and um, has some lovely attention to detail in in terms of how the Lego is built and how the enemies move around and similar to the, the old Lego video games, uh, like the Star, Star Wars Lego and that sort of thing. So there's always a lot of 
love and attention to how the, the, this Lego fits together. It is a little strange how much like the open world is is very much not Lego. So it's a little bit um, it seems a little bit out of place there. Uh, but I, I do like how much of the the buildings are all blueprints. So you don't have to like be worried about trying like for those those are people like me who aren't very creative, you don't have to think about how you're gonna put a building together. You can just pop down a blueprint and it's all done in stages, like it would be in a in a Lego book that you can gradually see it um, come together. So that, that, that I, I found quite enjoyable. But I found the world itself to be a little empty, uh, not 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 particularly engaging. It was just a lot of flat green space <laughs> and a bunch of trees to, to cut down or uh, or punch as it were uh so i i, I might check it out with, with my daughter uh, maybe on 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 the on the on the console uh and see, and see if she's interested but i i'm i'm not really pro- not playing the poker that too much more and partly because i was recommended another game uh, i asked for recommendations and i think it was uh jamie daggers previous guest in the show recommended one called enshrouded so this just dropped a couple of weeks ago uh, the same time as Power World, actually. So, sorry, Mark, did you, did you have a <laughs> thoughts there? No, I was only going to say that I'm uh, also intrigued by Enshrouded, but I know absolutely nothing about it. I, I guess I just missed all of the marketing, which is odd because I, I stay somewhat uh, aware of video game uh, media. So, yeah, please tell me more about it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Power World saw a little bit of its thunder, though I, I, it, it did do quite well. Like, it, it got over a million players in the first week, which is pretty good for an early access game, I'm going to believe. And so I, I don't remember the name of the studio, but it's, it's the people who made P- Portal Knights, which is a sort of anime, uh, chibi sort of survival game that had um, support for quite a f- number of years. I saw it popping up on on, on PlayStation and uh, maybe Game Pass at some point. But it was a, a long, had a long tail that game. So it's definitely a studio that had, that knows how to support a game long term. And so this is much more of a a gothic sort of European gothic uh, RPG setting. It looks a bit like um, I mean there was the old series called Gothic or not quite Morrowind, but a little bit of that Skyrim European sort of aesthetic but that meets like or Valheim I guess as a survival game it plays more like Valheim in terms of uh, the the how you construct things and like setting up like you have timers so you'll set up a a kiln and and throw some wood in there and then you have to wait for the timers to go down until you have coal but it's a completely crafted world unlike Valheim. So it's just, every, everyone who plays is going to be on the same world, basically, uh, which has its pros and cons, but at least for the, like, it's not going to necessarily be as replayable, but on the first time through, it's much, just a much more interesting world to explore. And a lot of attention has gone into crafting it. There's some really amazing verticality. Like you just, you come out into it. It's a little bit like Breath of the Wild. You come out, you sat on this plateau and you come out looking over this wide landscape and there's huge towers in the background and it has a, a great sense of scale. It's just fun to explore. Um, similar to Breath of the Wild because you get a glider and like a grappling hook. So it's basically Valheim meets uh, meets Breath of the Wild in a sense. <laughs> yeah, I have a affinity for the so quote-unquote tree punching games as you've called them um i i would typically call them survival craft games uh but more crafting than survival yeah yeah, and some of those games obviously have like a little bit less survival too like probably the one i like the most has no survival aspect at all it's just but it has plenty of tree punching it's called um, (laughs) um, satisfactory Uh, right mentioned it before it's sort of a more 
automation game, but it's played in that three uh, first person perspective. Uh, the resource gathering is important. And like you mentioned, with Enshrouded, has a fixed world design. And of the survival games I've played, I think I enjoy those more, the ones that do have a, a designed world than the ones that have the procedurally generated ones. Somehow I feel like there's just a more of a connection and there's a more of a intentionality in the level design. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and it's I find it easier to delve into those and get into those. But, you know, I played other ones like The Forest and... I suppose I haven't found like the one, you know, the one survival game, survival crafting game, tree punching game that I love the most. Um, Power World is, is fun, but it's not very deep as in like, it doesn't have a narrative going for it or anything like It seems like, like very that. empty calories. <laughs> oh, for sure. It's just like kind of being dropped in a sandbox, right? And, yeah. you and, know, yeah. And I mean, there is a story here in, in, in Shrouded. It's not, again, also not very deep, but I imagine they're going to expand upon that. It's a, it's a questing system enough that it's it's going to direct you from one area to another. It's really just an excuse to get you exploring and point you in, in, in a direction. Uh, but I, it's it's got a few rough edges, but it's some really nice quality of life features for one of these games. Uh, so I'm, I'm very curious to see how it evolves. I think it's a great base to build upon. So I'll be watching this closely. Speaking of bases, it has an incredibly robust base building system which again is usually my least interesting part of this but it's it's very easy and and uh customizable here so i'm quite enjoying that that's cool to hear well speaking of survival i'll talk about a, an older game uh that we actually covered in in full is called uh, vampire survivors and i believe oh, yes. we, we did a full episode of that back in the day but i hadn't touched that in a while and then my kid and i my oldest and i were looking for a co-op a couch co-op game to play and those are sadly more and more rare these days so um i was surprised to find vampire survivors in that category I guess I'd heard that they were doing a co-op mode, but I'd never tried it before. And we booted it up and we have played a couple of sessions. Uh, I don't think we fully survived <laughs> either one, but it was super enjoyable. You're only able to, each player is only able to collect about half of the weapons that they normally would. Mm, so I think they limit it to four weapons. They can be upgraded as many times as normal. And then they will let you pick up two or three or maybe even four passive, what are they called, artifacts or something like that, that are also themselves upgradable. But I guess they don't want, you know, two semi-invincible walking tanks. They want, you know, two just extremely formidable walking tanks um, do, do, blazing do across the screen. Do they interact at all, the two players? Like in terms of like if you if each player picking up different abilities, would those abilities interact at all, or is it well? How it works is exclusive. it's actually really clever and it works super seamlessly. So kudos to them. Is whatever experience you pick up on the ground is shared mm. is is actually not even shared. It all goes to one side until that one side levels up, and then after they level up, they get to choose their upgrade, and then all the XP they collect thereafter goes to the other party. So you take turns. They take turns upgrading. Okay. So the rhythm of it is really good. And when you drop, when you find a treasure chest, that chest that a elite has dropped or something like that, it seems to use a roulette based system, of course, knowing that the designer of this game is a, uh, was in the gaming gambling industry. 
uh, it sort of makes sense. You see this like flickering little interface, just like a slot machine that swaps between the character art, the 2D pixelated character art. And you, you're like, come on, come for me or come on, go for the other guy. And then sometimes you get one upgrade and sometimes you get the big three upgrades and it's super exciting. And it's kind of rejuvenated that game for me. Um, I'm interested again. I guess yeah, I guess that game like does lean on the on those sort of gambling highs that are best shared with with other players uh, and sh- sharing in the windfall as it were. So yeah, I'll have to check that out sometime. Yeah, it's a super blast. I'd highly recommend it. Excellent. Well, I did have uh, another video game I wanted to mention, but uh, in in lieu of this running too long, I might save that for next time. So let's let's give uh, the tabletop a spin. Uh, have you played any board games lately, Mark? Yeah, I uh, obviously played the game, of course, that we're going to be covering tonight. And while we were meeting, you and I, we played a couple of different games in person at two different spots. We played at Pizza Ludica last time, but did we record after that? No, no, I don't think we have. <laughs> okay, so we so we played at Pizza Ludica um, at the restaurant near us, and then, then we also played at your place. So I'm just going to mention Strike, uh, because you had mentioned it before. I had played it for my first time, and we played it with your neighbor, Ted. And it was fun, but it was very light. And I feel like <laughs> I totally understand a thousand percent what it's all about. And I, I'm not going to buy that box. That, 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 that's absolutely fine. There, there isn't a lot of game there, but it is at the same time, it's a game you can teach to anyone. And it, it, it's, it fits into a sort of subgenre that I've, I've been necessarily enjoying but appreciating in a sense lately is that sort of horse racing games where there's not really any skill going into it but there is a, a sort of element of, of sort of gambling or sort of watching a results play out at the very least and and sort of the sort of group dynamics of of of, <laughs> of cheering on each other or or the sort of uh, sort of simulated space like yeah. sort of the, the camels in camel up or uh we'll talk uh, bites is another game you played or uh challenges is another one that comes to mind where like the decks are playing themselves but you're you're basically cheering on and or or getting into the rivalries between different players based on completely simulated results right it's game gaming as an activity rather than as a i don't know an intellectual exercise or a competitive exercise it's a, it's a pastime and yeah, there's definitely room for both in the hobby <laughs> yeah i hope no one misunderstands me when i say i wouldn't buy that game but i wholeheartedly understand if anyone else wants to go out and buy it it's in undisputably, undoubtedly a, a, a lot of fun and great at parties. I think I might just, you know, enjoy crafting my own uh, arena per se with like books or uh, bowls or other objects I have around the house. I think that might be just as fun. Oh, you could really homebrew it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> with my own homebrew. It seems like a folk game, for instance. Like this should yeah, have been around for yeah. forever. And maybe it is. Maybe it's some sort of... Like Liar's Dice or something. Yeah, maybe it's some Peruvian <laughs> dice game that we're unaware of or something like that. Yeah, uh, you mentioned a couple of trick takers. We played uh, a few. Uh, I think Pies was one of them. And what was the name of the other one with them? Oh, Mori, right? Mori, yes. Yeah, those two were interesting. I think I liked Mori a little bit more. But unfortunately, I think we were playing with the wrong rules for Mori for most of it. 
I think well, we played it by the correct rules, but it, it, it took most of the game to really wrap our head around the flow of it. And uh, in hindsight, there was a couple of uh, things the rules don't really clarify very well. All play games tend to be very brief in their rules, for better or worse. And there's some subtleties there that often get missed. And uh, apparently there was like a couple of the examples were wrong. So I definitely want to revisit that one. It's, it's on, on the more complex side of, of trick-taking that took really took a while to, to wrap my head around, but it's definitely got some potential for repeat plays. Yeah, of the two that we played there that I mentioned, Pies and Mori, I think I enjoyed Mori more, partially because I, I won all three rounds that we played. <laughs> but Pies, I thought, was an interesting concept, but it seemed a little bit fiddly and a, a little bit too much work for the uh, end result. It seemed like a nascent larger strategy game that was just trying to bust out of a small tiny card game and i felt like as a result it it didn't have a strong foot in either camp i feel like it was a little too streamlined it it, it was a really cool concept there but it was it was sort of broken down to its component parts in in a little too well that it needs a little more friction perhaps or a little more bite to it uh so that, that was that's pies by matthias kramer who's actually w- quite well known for heavier games like a rococo and uh, glenn moore i believe and I, I guess just to quickly describe it um so pies is a, a trick-taking game but you the, the tricks are, v- are very simple there's not even any suits it's just numbers from like 1 to 18 or so, or so i think it was uh so you, you play it you play the cards into a trick and whoever plays the highest number gets to then draft a card from that trick uh, so the cards that were played collectively, you, you, you'll pick one of those and they all have different fruits on them and you're collecting those fruits to form sets. And I think that, that that's a really cool idea. Like we have this growing trend of, of trick taking being used to influence a secondary mechanic uh, like um, the king is dead or, or arcs that's coming up. Uh, this is a much more simplified version of that. But at the same time, it felt very arbitrary that it wasn't really a lot of choices to how things played out. Yeah, I don't think I'll be asking for that one again. But, you know, I'm all for innovative trick-taking games. I think it's fruitful ground. Uh, one of the games we talked about before, what was it? Quantum? Was that? No, no. Schrodinger's uh, Cat? Oh, Cat in the Box. Cat yes. in the Box. Yeah. 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 Cat in the Box is very innovative. And it, there's a reason why it's got uh, as much success and kudos as it has. It's super fun to play and kind of, uh, you know, mind-bending uh, when you come down to it. Yeah, that was, that was definitely the one that, that revived my interest in trick-taking games. So I've, I've been exploring quite a few in over the last year. Uh, and I still have a couple more. The, the Pies and Mori both came in a, a bundle from Allplay. So there's still a couple more to try. Uh, so I'm looking forward to, to further exploring that. Right. Uh, any other interesting tabletop games you've been playing? Um, to keep this a little brief, last episode we discussed, or you, I think you discussed playing Dune Imperium digital that's right uh and I'd, I'd mentioned just having picked up june imperium uprising which i've since gotten a couple of plays in so uh i've played i played twice now i think it was and yeah it, it's I, I for one thing i'm really enjoying it it's still like one of my favorite games but it is it surprisingly is quite a bit more going on here uh, there's a whole new spy mechanic that you can you can put down to to visit different locations. You, you can basically go to a location when someone else is already there, but you can also combo it in a couple of different ways. There's giant worms that you can plop down the board to like get a huge strength boost, but also if you win that battle, 
you get it d doubles the rewards you get for that combat and like double if you can double a, a victory point like that that is huge in a game where like 10 points wins you the game basically so that it can pretty it can shake up the the pacing of the game pretty dramatically i don't know that it, it, it's it's Definitely great as, a, as an experienced player of Junior Imperium. I'm having a lot of fun exploring the new combos. The combos come out a lot. There's a lot more combos to find now than there was in the original base game. The, the, the card market all felt very boring. Like there wasn't really much synergy to be found in the cards there. They all were pretty vanilla, I feel like. And this definitely goes to the other extreme and maybe overcompensates a little bit. Like I don't know that as much as I enjoy this game, it wouldn't be a good place to, to, to teach it to a new player necessarily. I am starting to appreciate the original base game as, as an introductory game more, if you know what I mean. Uh, so I, I'm, a, I'm particularly curious to see if there's a, a nice hybrid. I know there are some uh, suggestions out there for how you can combine the decks from both games. Uh, one of my friends has already done that, so I think we might be trying that this coming week. And I also would love to try it with the what was it? Immortality expansion that was also particularly good about comboing cards. So that you can get some really devious sort of combos and, and there's a lot more different ways to feel clever in how you're comboing your actions here. So yeah, definitely a lot more to explore in this one and I'm still really enjoying June Imperium. Yeah, fantastic. I'm curious about it. I think that's the sort of challenge that comes with all a lot of these, particularly deck building games that have um, expansion content that comes out. You know, all you have to do is look at the dozen or so dominion expansions and wonder how you're exactly you're going to combine each of the 10 stacks of cards and <laughs> they've written entire apps just to figure that out or a recommendation lists sort of like menus uh so well, like solemn uh, uh sommelier lists of particular cards <laughs> to combine with each other so there's there's a whole like sub industry or sub um passion uh sub uh hobby of putting together combinations of cards well, uh, as you mentioned, Dominion, there's, there's actually a new app just dropped out this last week, a new, a new digital implementation. Uh, there was one in the past, uh, but this is a, a brand new sort of very well put together uh, version. It's been in early access for a while, but this is the final version. You can get it free. Uh, at least the base game is free. Uh, and you can pay for those uh, those 15 or so expansions. Uh, but I've been poking at that. It's the first time I've played Dominion in, in 15 years. And uh, I, I don't know... I don't know. I think I think the, the the time has moved on beyond my my love of Dominion. There are too many other games have come out since that have evolved upon that. But uh, it's it's been it's been fun re-exploring that game at least. Yeah, very cool. It's interesting to see where it all came from. Well, with that all said, shall we move on to our featured game? Let's go into space. Let's take a break and we'll prep for launch. Okay, welcome back. We are taking a look for our, our featured game of the episode, Age of Wonders Planetfall. This is the board game that came out in 2022 based on the, the video game that came out in 2019, I believe, part of a, an ongoing uh, Age of Wonders series. But uh, this this game, designed by Stepan Opelev and published by Arcane Wonders and Hobby World. Artist is well, the artists are Ilarion Belitsky and Udrim. Yeah, that's right. This game came out in 2022, so um, pretty recent still. And uh, it was definitely 
cool to try it out. Yeah, so before we jump into this, Mark, are you, are you familiar with the, the video game or that series as a whole? I'm only very tangentially familiar with it. I have played Age of Wonders 3 for a short time. I think I enjoyed it, but uh, I guess <laughs> I don't give a lot of time to that Strong words. <laughs> genre of computer strategy game, as, uh, or at least I don't as much as I did in the past. Obviously, I grew up with um, you know great games like... Um, Sid Meier's Civ, and um, the space version of that, uh, Alpha Centauri. Alpha Centauri oh, was yeah, one of my yeah. favorite 4X-style uh, games, and I think Age of Wonders is is um, carrying on that tradition of 4X-style strategy game. Yeah, so Age of Wonders is a sort of fantasy 4X, and then Planet 4 was a sci-fi spin-off of that. And so it came out in 2019, quite a few years before this. Uh, and I, I hadn't played any of them. I think, oh, I think I briefly tried Planet 4, but my computer wasn't capable of running it at the time. And it was on Game Pass, but it isn't any longer, unfortunately. But I did do some research into it just to get some, some framing for this. And it's, it is a 4X sci-fi game, but it's a lot more focus on combat sort of tactical combat so i mean even civ has has combat but i it's the sort of thing i i at least usually skip over you can just auto resolve based on odds or you can go, go into the and do the nitty-gritty turn-by-turn combat and this this really leans into the, 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 that combat as a, as a core mechanic uh and flushes that out more so that that seems to be one of the core things that sort of sets, sets it apart uh, and there was also apparently a, a sort of strong sense of of character and in, in, in diversification between the different factions is what came across from the f- few rev- reviews I looked at. Like there's a one of the factions is a, is a sort of Amazonian women riding dinosaurs with lasers, and I mean I'm, I'm sure we can all uh, relate to that. Uh, so um, that that's just to give us some some framing to the video game. Neither of us have played it, but I, I think. I think this might be the first time we've covered a, a sort of a direct adaptation. Is that right? I would have to look into it. I think we might have done it in the other direction where a um, tabletop or an RPG was turned into a video game. But I don't think in this direction we've covered anything. Just so. Yeah, so I was, so I was, I was a little curious to see uh, how how it managed to, to translate that. So, with that oh, all said... I lied. Um, there was Fallout... Uh, the role-playing game. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's not quite the same direction, but yeah. <laughs> yes, a tangential direction. <laughs> so, um, Mark, did you want to describe how how Planet Fall the board game works? Yeah, absolutely. So, first off, I'm just going to say that um, it's card drafting primarily, and there's some light engine building uh, components to it. In the game, we all represent different sort of space-faring factions. I don't recall if it's six or seven of them, but you are presented with a bunch of those different factions to choose from. Each of the faction boards has two different sides, and they have a slight tweaking on the ability and a little bit of flavor to go behind it. Um, And then each of the factions comes with a really cute uh, sort of spaceship turn marker, which uh, helps you organize uh, who goes first in the drafting order which is pretty important in these types of games. There's going to be three rows of cards, and depending on the number of players, uh, the top row is going to be one larger than the middle row, which is going to be one more card than the bottom row. It's got a bit of a pyramid or an inverse pyramid. Yeah, that's right. And the main core concept of the game, which you can get in an instant after just playing your very first round, is that 
you line the players in order, and then the first player gets to choose one of the cards. And if they, at the end of the round, at the end of the middle draft, because there's two drafts every round, uh, are the in the top left position, then they go first. And if they're in the bottom right position, then they go last. Uh, but of course, there's a large number of cards. So you might be the second card from the in the top row, and then the last card in the middle row, and then the first card in the last row. Uh, and that determines your player order. So pretty cool that way. Yeah, and then an important uh, detail there too is that the cards all have a cost to them, uh, and that it's sort of set out in this quite elegant way where the, the cards at the top of the in the top row will cost more, and the cards in the bottom row will cost less, essentially. So they they all have uh, three different costs based on where they are in the pyramid. So the the cards up top will cost more, but will let you go first and and, and vice versa on the bottom. So I thought I found that whole system to be pretty elegant. Uh, and it's just this constant little decision of, well, it's a card I really want, but there might be two copies of it or slight tweaks, different, slightly different versions on it. And how much do you want to grab a cheaper version or how much do you want to go first next round? So this constant little, little again, little micro decisions that you're constantly having to make that was uh, I found incredibly engaging. Right. And and that core structure, like I said, is very easy to understand. Yeah, um, digging yeah. in a little deeper, each of the faction boards has a level, which is just sort of like a tier that only goes up. So you can't go down. It's not a currency it's like experience you can spend. level with an RPG or something like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're going that's, from level that's one right. to level two, level three. Yeah. Right. And, and it acts as a sort of a gate to measure the cost of things. Um, and then there's two main currencies. I think one of them is called energy and the other one is called strength or it's, it's mil related, related to the military. Yeah. Yeah. And basically things are going to cost one or the other. And then there's this cool thing called diplomacy. I don't know if it's called diplomacy in both cases, but if your rank is level is high enough or if a condition is met, you can pay the other currency instead of the main one. So you can pay energy instead of strength. Or strength instead of energy and it sort of flips the reward you get but there are some tiers uh, and some kind of constraints that you have to fulfill before you can make use of that yeah and there's, there's, there's only those two currencies basically and they, they kind of act like a bit of a seesaw like most of the most of the time if you're spending strength you're going to get some energy as a reward and if you're spending energy, you'll get some strength as a reward. I mean, thematically, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's basically a seesaw trying to keep those two uh, currencies balanced. Uh, so you have to do a little bit of each in, in terms of, of, of trying to make sure you have enough to continue forward and not have to waste a turn collecting more resources. Right. And one thing that we didn't mention yet, but um, we're, we're definitely coming to now, is that in addition to the four or five cards in the top row, each of the rows has a sort of a default space, which gives you the ability to convert resources um, from one into another. Um, actually, I don't even think it lets you convert. It gives you a new resource just for going to that space, and you instantly convert that into strength or victory points or just, uh, or you can buy energy too there, right? Uh, not by default. So these are operations, uh, they're called, and you, you can, by deep, can by default not 
buy energy but there are some technologies later on that will let you do that yeah the energy is actually an interesting type of card that i think we should go into in a little bit more depth later but there's basically one of these default spaces per row it's treated like a card as in if one person goes there no one else can go there per row i believe and the effect gets a little bit stronger as you go down so if you take the default operations space in the top row, it's less effective than the one on the bottom row. Uh, essentially gives you fewer conversions. And you're also limited from buying victory points based on what round it is. So if it's round one, you can only buy one victory point. If it's round six, you can buy six victory points by spending those conversions. Yes, yeah. So it's another little. Uh, it's a bit of a, a consolation. So if if there's no cards in particular that you want, there's always gonna you can at least always take one of those, and unless someone else has also taken them. Uh, and of course, there are some technologies that will let you sort of lean into that as a bit more of a, a direct strategy. Uh, but there were there were a nice little compromise if uh, if nothing else came out that you were looking for. Yeah, so that's the basic structure in it, of it. And I think this game is excellent in that it's very easy to teach. I feel like we started playing for the first time and got into it pretty quickly. And as far as game setup goes and takedown, it's just a real treat compared to another sort of similarly similar length, similar weight drafting game, such as, I don't know, maybe the elephant in the room is Seven Wonders. It's a lot uh, easier to set up and easier to explain uh, Planetfall is than, than Seven Wonders. Yeah. Go ahead. In Seven Wonders, I mean, I, I, I have played it quite a bit, but I remember struggling with that really when I, when I was first getting into board games. It's, it's, it's not certain elements that aren't particularly intuitive, especially like the way you're, you're forming sets and, and the science cards and uh, it, it's, it's hard to teach in sense too because you're drafting like because everyone has their own head of cards and so it's hard to explain certain cards without sort of looking at other people's hands whereas here in planet four all the cards are on the table sort of drafting from a collective pool so it's really easy to explain how everything's working there everything's open and, and in front but it, you're still getting that really um satisfying sense of drafting and, and sort of balancing your priorities that i, I uh yeah I, I found a really elegant core drafting system yeah I, I totally agree with that because all the cards are laid out at the beginning of the round and there's basically two drafts per each of the 10 rounds so you're you're drafting seven seven rounds sorry no, sorry uh, each of the seven rounds so there's two drafts yeah. for each of the seven rounds you get a pretty clear uh, idea of where the direction is going to go and with the relative strength of cards and basically it's your puzzle your your challenge to balance your resource production your accumulation and your special ability given to you by your unique faction with the cards that are available and of course accounting for the drafting order and trying to get that card at the opportune time before your opponent does which was the meat of the drafting challenge and i think it does that really successfully it uh, plays very smoothly which I appreciate. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very snappy game. Um, everyone, like, broadly, everyone has a, a general sense of what they're trying to go for. Uh, and like you, you think you mentioned earlier, all the ships have like these unique shapes. So plunking those down into the central space is, is uh, very, very satisfying. Um, so that, yeah, that, I, I really found that 
that to be a joy. You said there's the seven seven rounds, so each one each round being a different planet. So there's each, each round is a, is basically a different planet that you're fighting over, uh, and and I think the first four four turns, so the first four planets are going to be like building up your your engine. Uh, like there's a lot of technologies that will give you different abilities, like let you letting you spend those operation points on, on energy, for example. Uh, whereas in the last three rounds, those three those technologies are going to be like give you additional ways of getting points, uh, victory points. Like I might say, well, at the end of the game, you get victory points per per experience level, or per strength that you haven't spent at the end of the game. So that's going to shake things up a little bit. And that's another uh, thing. I I can see people playing this to the, to the point where you're memorizing. Well, I know that the the card for that gives you points for experience levels comes out in round five, so I have to make sure that I'm I'm first going into round five. Uh, so I, I can see quite quite a bit of replayability there in terms of of trying to to na- like a- aiming for very specific cards. Yeah, I think players are going to get familiarized with the limited set of cards pretty quickly. Uh, I think you and I played you know two or three rounds that just one weekend, and it you sort of saw the combos starting to build from uh, pretty pretty quickly from the second or third time. I think Ted, uh, who we played with a couple of times, he was very funny because he's like, we've played this four or five times, right? And you were saying, I played every game with you. I think we've only, only played three times. And we were <laughs> joking that he must have been playing games of it in his head while he was sleeping. Because that's just the sort of game this is. It's like, next time I'm going to play like this and I'm going to totally leverage this ability if I get that faction again. And yeah, it- I, I think that's a strength and that's a maybe a potential limitation of this game as well. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's tough in that sense. Like I said, I mean, some, some groups are just going to want to play one game over and over again and have particular strategies in mind and, and, and aim for those. And, and I said, memorizing cards, if that's something that really gets, gets it's something that sort of drives you in terms of, of trying to, to, to nail a very specific strategy, this, you, you'll, you'll find some fun here. You can memorize those cards and when they're going to come out. And like, I, I, I don't find that particularly satisfying in trying to remember those specific details. So I, I generally prefer improvising a little more. Uh, there is a little bit of variety here into like not all cards come out every round. There'll be always a couple of depending on how many players, there'll be a couple of cards left out. So you can't always rely on that. But I can see that being an appeal to this game is that people who want to play a game over and over again and memorize those cards. Um, personally, I, d- I don't think there was enough variety in the rest of the cards that are already always going to be a little samey. I felt. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's largely going to depend on the group, I think, as to how much that replayability is going to uh, come together. Right. Yeah. There's about four or five types of cards that come out every planet. This is roughly corresponding to Seven Wonders in that there's you know four or five different types of cards that come out in each of its ages. You see similar types of cards that do similar things. So the red cards give you military strength and some experience, I think, in most cases. And you sort of get one-off rewards of victory points and uh, energy often. So I guess your looting is the theme. And then the energy cards are typically one or um, the other is you gain temporary energy, which you add to your pool, and it, it stays until you spend it, or 
you you forfeit that temporary energy. So energy cards, I, I should reiterate, are cards that give you something when you draft it, as opposed to something that takes you away and you convert it into something else. Um, quite often, they'll just give you something, which you you might need to take that opportunity cost to reclaim energy which you haven't produced otherwise. Or the other option is you may, within a lot of these energy cards, take it as a um, persistent production value. So it raises your energy production. You only get that amount at the beginning of every uh, round. But um, if you invest in it early enough, then you reap those rewards uh, each round thereafter. So I thought that was a, a fun uh, sort of uh, balancing act to toggle there. Yeah, yeah, I didn't find that super engaging in terms of like it, it's it's generally it's always going to make sense to get the the income like the what's what's it called uh, excising the the planet um, I can't remember but basically turning it into a into an ongoing income rather than taking the the, the immediate and, and I, unless you're desperate for, for yeah. resources for a very specific card that you might then miss out on anyway so I didn't I didn't it's it's good it's only really there as a as a emergency yeah, <laughs> break no, case no, emergency no argument <laughs> no argument there i think I, I think people only take it when they have to certainly yeah yeah, yeah. but uh it's, that's all drafting games are right is opportunity cost management and the other one of the other type of cards i can think of was the blue cards which sort of have this combo end game scoring condition where you gain points based on the number of pairs of each type that you get so I forget their names, but they have specific names. They come it's out. It's called locations, I think. And yeah. like if you get if you can get two of them, you get some bonus points. And it, it is nice that they'll like it will tell you on the card. Like in, in round one, you might grab one of these, and it'll tell you, well, this the matching locations that come up in rounds three, five, and seven. So you know how how many chances you have to get the matching pair. Right. And then there's the purple type of cards, which I think are called maybe science or technology cards. And they were the ones that there were the most uh, varied and unique, I, I feel like. And they cost, I think, a mix of energy and, and military, probably. And they give you more um, elaborate effects. So they might be, at the end of the game, you gain points for as many of this type of card that you might have collected over the course of the game. Or earlier in the game, you might get one that makes certain types of cards cheaper. It will say like locations cost one less energy from here on out. So that's where the sort of en the engine building elements come in. For sure. So those types, those four or five types of cards should come out every round. Although, as I found out, with every faction or with every number of players, you might not see certain types of cards. So, yeah, so we did find that at two to three players, you use a smaller range of cards each round. It's really, it, it really felt a lot tighter. Like it's, lo it's much less likely that a particular type of card will come out any given turn. Yeah, I, I counted it out. So in four or five, in a four or five player game, there's twelve cards that are available to draft. So five, four, and three are the three rows. And there's only two cards that don't come out. Right. And in a two or three player game, there are only nine cards available to draft. So the very first round, when I chose the faction that gave you a discount for each energy card that you collect, no energy cards came out <laughs> in one in the very first round. And I, I thought to myself, oh, this is a very bad omen. Yeah. So 
I'm not entirely sure where I fall on this. So these factions are going to give you a general guideline as to what you should focus on, but they're never going to completely break the game. I I did feel in a sense that these are pretty well balanced in terms of they're not going to like add a whole extra level of complexity, but they do add just enough to make you recalculate how much you might want a particular card. Like just make you recalculate what your priorities are. Like the, the, the one you had was energy cards are more valuable. One of the ones I had was the cards in the middle row. If you, if you, if you draft one of those cards, you get an extra point or some energy or something. So again, it, it's just a little bonus that might make you, Ooh, actually if I do this, I, I get this little treat. So I, I, th- I thought that was a really good balance. You are sometimes going to find a particular play account so that this doesn't, come into play like i think broadly i only ever found myself using those abilities a couple of times per game so it's never there are always going to be other things that are, are, are more appealing one way or another but some players may find they get a bit of more of an advantage there yeah i found that in the few games i played i think i only played three or four times that i also only used my faction leader power two or three times in in um, you know a 14 action game so that left me felt a little disappointed and i would kind of counter and say that some factions you do gain all of the benefit of that faction for instance all at once or every time for instance there's one faction that gives you 15 military to start or 15 strength yes so obviously (laughs) there's no way you can fail to utilize that ability unless you ignored uh military and the other one was something like you're always laugh last in drafting order it was the one that you played more recently yes yeah but i could lock a card off but i i I, I got to lock a card at the start of the round but then i went last every round right and that impact is 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 doubled when you consider that at the beginning of every game you're dealt a sort of communal goals uh, at random. So there's these little yeah, placards yeah. that list three communal goals. So everyone's aware of them from the outset. And it might just so happen that the faction you're dealt let is makes you better at doing that thing that's worth points. Um, also, two of the factions at play or multiple of the factions, the players at play might be chasing or better off at one thing. And that means that they're going to sort of monopolize or compete for that one thing, whereas the odd one out or the odd ones out can go and pursue other strategies uh, because they're not sort of incentivized to do so. So in that way, the combination of the faction powers and the communal goals can be quite swingy in how they're aligned. I yeah, thought. I didn't. I didn't love those shared goals. Uh, partly, you, you get like three of them, but they're all bundled together, so you're never gonna like. You don't draw each one independently. You always get these three, like a card with these three or a card with these other three. But it, it does sort of encourage everyone, like because some games so, suddenly units, the the military units, are more are worth more. Uh, so everyone's only fighting over those. So it, it discourages the players from taking different strategies and instead of diversifying uh so i, I think i feel it makes it a little less interesting in that regards and but I, it, it does it does and as you said it, it it gives some advantages to the factions i think broadly the factions are actually a really good balance of complexity it, they're just not entirely balanced with each other and some of those other goals as you said 
Yeah, in terms of goals, I would say I prefer something more like how Terraforming Mars does it, where it has two sets of, albeit uh, fixed, um, end game goals in, in the base game anyway. So there's the five goals that are a literal race. Whoever gets to them first can can take a specific action to claim that point bonus. And whoever gets to it first gets it, no dispute. And then the second set of five or six options is an end game bonus. And whoever pays decides which of those, which three of those five get triggered at the end of the game, if at all. So in that way, it's a little bit more subtle which of the 10 goals will be chosen as the final six um, mm. point modifiers. Mm. Whereas in this game, there's only three. Those are the three. Good luck. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I like the, I like the, the terraforming Mars system. I, I, look, I'd, I'd considered, well, would it make sense to have for players to have their own personal goals here? But again, you'd have some would just give it, would just synergize well with particular factions. But I don't know that the game is really robust. Like it, it's a pretty relatively simple, streamlined game. There, there, is, there are only so many strategies there that I don't know that there's really enough to warrant having. Of sort of a, a robust goal system in the first place, you know? sure, and without, I, without I adding think, more to the base game. Yeah, I think therein lies a difficult question: is normally, if we were talking about, let's admit it, a more successful game, we would be talking about all of the raft of planned expansions that were coming out or had already come out this long after launch. This game. Looks like it didn't create much of a fuss and that perhaps no expansions are coming out. So I think this game probably was designed with ex expansions in mind. It intentionally came out with a, a simple, easy to play core set of rules. And then they had planned to make it deeper and more robust over time. And unfortunately, I don't know if that's going to end up happening with this particular title. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone that we played with had a similar thought that there's a really a lot of potential for expansions here, and where you could um, you, you could expand upon the, 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 the that core system is so strong that you could really use that to, to leverage a bunch of other variations. I was I was surprised there was no variations even on on, on board game geek. Like no one else had suggested anything there. Uh, what I mean, what, what I thought would would work pretty well is uh, sort of a mini campaign similar to It's a Wonderful World, where you, you play a, a series of these is games, where you you'll get some a small tweak to the mechanics each time, or like you might get advantages on a, on a particular planet. Like an actual campaign, like it would would recapture some of that that Forex campaign. Um, sort of t tone if you know what i mean they you, maybe you have an advantage on planet four now um or this is the, the draft works slightly differently this game there's a lot of little ways you could easily tweak it to to keep it a lot more just keep the variation going yeah yeah i totally agree and and that might be the 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 most sad uh, effect of all is that there's so much potential for expansion of this game. I, for one, would have loved to have seen a maybe a little bit more of a cut down style uh, galactic map, something sort of like a watered down version of like an eclipse or uh, yeah, yeah. a uh, Twilight Imperium where there's sectors, uh, a three, a two dimensional representation of space and controlling it with ships because 
let's face it, you already got your ship markers in the base game. Maybe you, you sell additional little like mini fighters that go along with it. <laughs> and of course that would up the complexity, but I think it's, this game is begging to be, to have, you know, 20, 15, 20% more depth bolted on. Uh, and I, I can't help but think that it's fruitful ground. This core system is really solid. Yeah, well, you mentioned there having having a map of the galaxy, and I think that, that is the other big issue here, is that we haven't really discussed the theme at all, in that there isn't really a theme, right? Uh, the, you, you, the, the, each round is a different planet. You're going from planet to planet, but it, it's, a, it's a really strange setup. Like, we're, we're te- technically factions fighting over this power vacuum. The, the Star Empire has collapsed, and we're playing a faction trying to f- fight for control. But we all agree, okay, let's go to this planet and we'll fight and decide who gets this planet. And then once we're done there, we'll, we'll, we'll then all fly over to planet two and we'll fight there. And, like, it doesn't really make sense as why we're moving planet to planet systematically like this. It's like some weird war games. Yeah. So the theme doesn't really come across at all in that sense. Yeah, I think it com- the theme comes across as well as it does in a lot of these types of strategy empire building games like Seven Wonders itself. We've already mentioned it. Eminent Domain is uh, another card uh, game with a space theme that I really love that's ostensibly about uh, building a galactic ep- empire, but there's no feel of that whatsoever. And even when it comes down to something like Through the Ages, do you really feel like you're going to islands and conquering them with your soldiers? <laughs> I don't really think you do. You're more like building stuff and spending stuff. Yeah, I, th- I think it's partly this that it, that it tried to it, it's, it's trying to capitalize on the video game, and I think had it not had that comparison, it, w- it wouldn't even be that much of an issue. But to be honest, I, I don't really know who this game is for. So the, the video game Age of Wonders Planet Four, I mean, it had a, it had a pretty good reputation. I, I, know, I know plenty of people have said it's very good, but no, no one's talking about that in in twenty twenty three, right? It, it's 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 like there's a new age of wonders four out now that people are playing people have moved on it's not a game that people are passionate about and still and still talking about no one knows who these characters are i i couldn't tell you the name of any of these characters like the the Z, zeno institute or the the the, the blagal refinery or so like it's just sci-fi gibberish to me it makes you wonder uh, if this game engine would have been more popular if it was tied to the Age of Wonders core fantasy pseudo European 4X, uh, franchise than its, um, less popular spin-off series in sci-fi world. Even that's pretty neat niche though. And then the, the people who do play those games and are familiar with it, they're going to want a 4X game, right? Is it like the, really the characters and the units that they care about? Like, it's just, they, they, the, the cards here, like just have the, the a picture of the, a unit and their name and, this is basically copied and pasted the, the, the game, sorry, the, the unit from the video game that you're just collecting them like Pokemon. And it's not really engaging with those characters at all. But I don't know that anyone would have really cared about those, like what particular monster you're fighting in in in, in the video game. Like I, I was thinking if it was something like um, StarCraft, like just a more well-known IP that, that a wider range of people would be interested in because no one's going to want to play this game. If they, like, if they see that IP and say, well, I don't know that, this game isn't for me. Right. So I, I, I really think they shot themselves in the foot by picking that IP. It's just not yeah. going to really appeal to anyone. I totally agree <laughs> with you. No argument there. I think basically they got the license that they could get. 
Basically, yeah. w- one of two things happened. Either someone designed this game and sought out a license to buy, and that was the license that was available, or someone that worked for, who is it? Paradox, the the digital game yeah, studio. Yeah. Because a lot of they're the, the, the um they're the distributor, they're not the publisher. They're okay. The distributor. Yeah. But well, say someone that works for the publisher or the developer of the PC game or someone they know had an interest in tabletop games. Lord knows there's plenty of video game designers who design tabletop games and vice versa that they just decided, Hey, I could theme this thing into a game license that I already am related to. Uh, come on, would that be okay? And and they, they just greenlit it. I imagine it's yeah, one of those um, situations. More than likely. And unfortunately, like, as you said, this, this doesn't seem to have made much of an impact uh, on, on landing. So uh, I, I, I think this, mechanic really has a lot of potential if they, they rethemed it either to a different ip or just a more, a more accessible theme like i was thinking something along the lines like point city i think it's a, some similarities to that in terms of you know it's a it's a uh an open tableau you're drafting from and building a little engine and and that's a very cutesy accessible theme that you could you know any any anyone could be would be happy to play that broadly i think that that um so just yeah, a more accessible theme or a more recognizable IP. But uh, as it is, I, I just don't know who this game is for, unless you're a, a, a super fan of Age of Wonders Planetfall from 2019. <laughs> right. Yeah, I totally agree. Though I really enjoyed the few times that I played this game, and my only complaint is that they won't come out with expansions to make it a, a touch deeper and uh, give it a little bit more replayability. So that's basically my my thoughts about that. One shout out I would like to make is to a somewhat similar game that I played back in the day, uh, at least similar in theme, is is a one from 2011. It was designed by Andrew Parks, and it's a one of the first batch of deck building games after Dominion called Core Worlds. Did you ever play that one? Maybe yeah. The name the name rings a bell. I don't I don't. Yeah, it has so many similarities in terms of overall theme structure. Even it has five rounds, and there's two sort of rounds per era. I guess I guess you could call it. So it sort of broke down that way. It was a deck building game, but with just a little bit more going on. And as I recall, it had two currencies as well, and also long term goals that you all the players would uh, strive towards and compete for. So in that sense, uh, very similar. I would say it's a little bit deeper than this game, and it has come out with a few expansions. In fact, uh, I didn't know this, but Core Worlds was remade as uh, Core Worlds Empires in 2021, and I think there's another expansion called like Nemesis or something similarly sci-fi like that so go check that out if uh, if you can maybe i will also core worlds it, it is hard to differentiate all these sci-fi names they all sound the same <laughs> for sure but somehow i can't get enough of them uh, and uh, i do enjoy playing planetfall maybe we should play again soon and we'll see how it feels after a little bit more thought yeah, I mean, once you're familiar with this game, it's really it's pretty short. You can you can breeze through this in, in half an hour, even even at f- five players. It's a su- super breezy game, and I think that's one of its core strengths. Like, I I do really enjoy the core mechanics here. Uh, if you're willing to look past the wallpaper, or just uh, yeah. <laughs> or if you are a fan of that, then there there is a, a, a quite in- elegant, satisfying drafting game to be found here. There you go. Yeah, it's definitely worth the play. 
All right, Daniel, you think we should wrap it up there? Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the game we are playing next. I think we already agreed upon one, right? Yes, we did. Okay. (laughs) Would you like to do us the honors? Yeah, well, we've been teasing this game a little bit over the last few episodes, but I think we're finally at a point where we can both discuss it, and that is Jedi Survivor. Or I'm, I'm sure there's a, a Star Wars prefix tacked on there somewhere. But so this is this is the, uh, the the Star Wars game from last year, 2023, sequel to what was the first game? Jedi <laughs> Outcast? No, not not, not Outcast. Fallen, Fallen. Order. Fallen Empire, Fallen, Fallen Order. Fallen Order. Jedi, Jedi Fallen Order. Jedi Fallen Order. That sounds right. <laughs> yeah, so memorable. Uh, I mean, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't help that there's been like 25 or 35 Star Wars video games in, in the last 30 years. Yeah, and that's partly why I I avoided this game. Uh, I'd um, gotten confused around the, the nomenclature, and it just sounded more of the same, basically. But I, I'd heard some some strong uh, reviews of this in the sort of end of year wrap up last year, and you, you'd mentioned borrowing it from the library and enjoying it. So we're both going to take a closer look. That's right. It'll be cool to play a, a video game uh, for one. It's been a little while, and a little bit of a longer game too. So trust us, we've been putting the hours in. Yes, yeah, it's our first AAA game in, in, in some time. So, yeah, looking forward to that. So, Jedi Survivor, it's not on Game Pass, uh, but you, I think, I think um, the previous game was on, like, EA Access, so you could get it kind of, kind of through Game Pass there, uh, or check out your local library. Yeah, and just to add a little bit more controversy to the table, oh, there's a little game called Pal World that you might want to check out on Game Pass as well. Joke. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm going to put the stake in that one. It's done. <laughs> well, I'm going to go punch some trees. <laughs> there you go. Until we ended up end up covering it, that's the last Pal World talk for a while. Well, do you have anything else you want to promote, Daniel? Well, I recently published my favorite games of 2023 board games that is on my blog over at board game feast uh, one of the games we mentioned earlier made made an appearance so uh, go check that out i'm working on a, a recipe to, to put out in the next um week or so trying to sort of reboot that side of my feast content so if you like pairing games with food go check out board game feast Fantastic. I might just, uh, since my uh, mini arc of The Strange ended, I might start planning for the next sessions of the Fallout RPG. Excellent. Looking forward to continuing. Great. Okay. Well, until next time, then, I hope everyone out there has a very balanced diet of gaming. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.